Well, good morning, Biltmore Church. How's everybody doing today? Oh, look, y'all can do better than that. I don't care what campus you're at, whether you're watching online, you join us in person, you can do better than that. How is everybody doing today? That's better, that's better. Look, this is like the greatest time to be alive, right? I mean, the Atlanta Braves are atop the NL East, okay? You woke up today or wherever you are and the temperatures were probably a lot lower than they have been historically, which means for the middle-aged woman, pumpkin spice lattes are back, okay? And uh, college football is back. And deer hunting is closing in, so it's great. It's awesome. Hey, listen, um, it really is. It's a great, it's a great uh, season to be alive. It's a great season to be here, gathered together as the body of Christ. Uh, before we jump in today, I do just want to celebrate. Uh, we just kind of flew through that uh, last week, the, the, the outdoor baptisms that took place all over Western North Carolina. We had people baptized uh, down in Franklin. We had people uh, baptized here um, at a lake just right down the road uh, from all of our campuses, from all over Western North Carolina and beyond. Y'all, there were over a hundred people that said yes to following Christ in faithfulness and saying yes to being baptized. That's something to celebrate. That's incredible. That's a... And it's not just that the waters were stirred, it's, it's who was in the waters, right? I mean, I, I, got, I got stories from people who, men who were in the water baptizing their children. That's generational discipleship. When the Spirit of God moves in the hearts of families, literally, families' lives are altered and the trajectory of their lives are altered for generations to come. It's literally what we pray for. It's a great season to be alive. My name is Jason Gaston. I am uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Biltmore Church, and uh, Lord willing, Pastor Bruce will be back with us next week uh, as we uh, continue our series in Year of the Bible, all right? Hopefully you've got the Gospel of Luke opened up to Luke chapter 24. If you got it, say yep. Okay, that's like nine of you. That's awesome. All right. Well, as you're turning there or turning your Bible on or flipping to the pages, the year was 2004, okay, 2004. There was a young man by the name of Matthew Emmons. Matthew Emmons was an American athlete, and he was stepping on the world's largest stage to compete for his country in the Olympic Games, okay? Walking out and into the, into the massive stadium, hearing the people cheer was a dream that he had had for really his whole life, Okay? Now, Matt, Matt Emmons wasn't your typical athlete that's going to get all of the TV hype, okay? He wasn't a track star. He wasn't breaking ankles on the basketball court, all right? He, he wasn't doing, like, all kinds of epic stuff that you're going to see. He was a rifleman, okay? He was a rifleman. And he would go down as one of the most decorated Olympians in American history. You've probably never even heard his name, okay? As one of the most decorated Olympians in American history. He steps onto the stage in 2004, but his story, though he would one day become the most decorated, one of the most decorated Olympians in American history, his story didn't start off all that great, okay? Now, just like every Olympian that ever put on the stars and stripes or the crazy uniforms or walked in the stadium, he had a dream that one day he would stand atop the podium and he would hear the old pub song turned anthem play and everybody would stand and tears would roll down his eyes. You guys know that moment? You get chill bumps listening to it, right? Okay. He, he would have that moment, but not quite yet. In 2004, Matt Emmons is about to taste his first 
gold medal. All he would have to do was make the most easy shot known to a rifleman. In fact, he would later say it was a shot that he, he has made in practice with his eyes closed. It's the equivalent of a three-inch tap-in putt, although I, I miss those all the time, not going to lie. Right? It's, it's, it's like an extra point. It's, it's a layup. It's the easiest shot that a rifleman could make. He had factored in everything that needed to be factored. Literally, the prize was in the palm of his hands. He'd factored in the wind speed. He'd factored in the wind direction. He had factored in the gravitational drop. He'd factored in if the flux capacitor was working or not. He had done it all. So Emmons gets up. He postures his body correctly. He takes a deep breath in, takes a deep breath out, and he pulls the trigger. Bullseye! He nailed it! Matt Emmons made the perfect shot. Gold medal was his. Or was it? You see, for all the things that Matt Emmons got right, he missed one really important thing. His breathing technique, impeccable. His posture, perfect. Everything on his firearm setup, Amazing. He was ready to go. But the one thing Matt Emmons forgot about was the right target. You see, Matt Emmons made the perfect shot on the wrong target, on the world's biggest stage. Right aim, wrong target. What a shame it would be. What a shame it would be If we posture ourselves so perfectly, we factor in all the things so perfectly in our lives, but what if the trajectory of your life is pointing at the wrong target? Maybe some of you in here, you have postured yourself up in such a way, you have believed all the things that you are called to believe as a follower of Jesus, but the target has moved to a situation that you feel like you have no control over and it's caused you to doubt. Maybe it's suffering. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's loss. Maybe it's a prodigal running away, and it's caused you to second-guess the target upon which you have set your eyes and set your heart on your entire life. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to drop right into a pretty difficult story, right into the life of the disciples. Now, when we read this passage historically, you don't really think about it being a difficult season for the disciples because it's Resurrection Sunday, But what we're going to do today is we're going to drop right in, right into the midst of all the pain, all the chaos, and all of the confusion that the disciples were feeling on Resurrection Sunday. You guys know the disciples, right? The disciples are the guys that walked with Jesus. They're the ones that saw Jesus do all the miracles. They're the ones who had set their hope on Jesus. They're the ones that had left everything to follow Jesus, Specifically in this passage, we're going to look at two guys in particular, two guys that believed, they had believed wholeheartedly that Jesus was the promised one. Their belief was not wrong. They had hoped for the Messiah, but their Messiah was literally just crushed on the hill. Devastation has set in, and we're going to see them go on a journey from absolute despair, disappointment, doubt, 
to the moment where Jesus redirects their doubt to now, after that, seeing their life propelled because of the reality of the resurrection. We're going to walk with them in their hurt. We're going to see how Jesus addresses it specifically, and then we're going to look at what it means for us. Y'all ready to go? Y'all ready to roll? All right, let's do it. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read Luke 24, verse 13. This is the disciples post, um, post-crucifixion. They are on the road to a town called Emmaus. It's a long passage, okay? I'm going to read the entire passage, and then we're going to break it down here as we go throughout the points, all right? Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, that's Easter Sunday, okay, that very day, Easter, two of them, that's the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened that day. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went with him. So Jesus shows up, right? Jesus shows up on the road to Emmaus. And he's meeting with these two disciples in their confusion. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. A lot of scholars uh, have, trans, have, have looked at that in, in multiple different facets. Some people believe that it was the enemy that had blinded them. But as you begin to unpack the passage, you can't help but believe that it was the Lord that was keeping them from seeing it until they had the aha moment a little bit later. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Could you imagine that conversation? Like, really? Hello, McFly, anybody home? You been under a rock? Literally. See what I did there? It's a dad joke in me. Okay, there we go. All right. And he said, someone said, Oh, I get it. Dad, you do. That's right. And he said to them, Huh? What, what things? What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, hello, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Skip down to verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things that were concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going to go further, but they urged Jesus strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So Jesus stays with them. And then when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. That's going to be really important a little bit later. We're going to come back to that, okay? And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And then they rose that same hour, and they went seven miles back to Jerusalem. They went back to upon which they came. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Three things I want us to see today. I want you to go ahead and write these things down. They'll be on the screen for you. Number one, the disciples experienced a diminished hope. A diminishing hope. Disappointment. 
Let's just, let's just like actually step in to see why these guys were really so disappointed. It was Sunday afternoon, Easter afternoon. Jesus' disciples had been through a horrible and traumatic week. Y'all, like if you just press rewind on the VCR, y'all remember those things? Okay. If you just press rewind on the VCR and go back a week, think about all the things that these people had just experienced about the one that they thought was going to redeem them. The one that they believed who was the Messiah, who would restore everything back to Israel, guess what? He's dead. Dead. Their own people, the Jewish rulers, had colluded with Roman officials to have Jesus executed as a criminal. But guess what? He was anything but a criminal. All the trial and the execution that had gone on before, everything was based off of lies and a setup. He never broke the law. There was a betrayal of a close friend just a few days earlier. Y'all remember that? The kiss on the cheek? One of their own had betrayed them. They heard one of their own just a few days earlier deny Jesus multiple times when asked if they knew him or if he was with them. Their world is falling apart. They watched their Savior, their Redeemer, get beat. They watched him get spit upon. They watched people turn their backs on him. They watched him's broken body, okay, a broken body, carry a cross up a hill. They watched him fall under the weight of it. And then they watched him get raised up and die a criminal's death. Literally between two criminals. But guess what he was not? A criminal. The one that they thought would bring about their life and freedom now had life taken from his body, and they were disappointed. Do you blame them? They were confused. They're hurt. So they find themselves now, okay, three days later, and he is still dead, and their hearts are desolate and hopeless. Jesus himself had raised people from the dead, so why was he still in the tomb, they thought. If he had the power to raise others from the dead, why was he still the one who had to be beat? Why was he the one who had to be crushed? Why was he raised up on the hill, on the cross? Why was he still in the tomb? And they find themselves now on a road towards a town called Emmaus. They've now left the epicenter, Jerusalem, of where all of the activity had taken place. And they're on their way to a podunk town. They're literally walking away. They're walking, they're walking away. And then Jesus shows up and it's like, hey guys, what's going on? What's this conversation you're having? But remember, they don't recognize him. They don't, they don't know who's, who's in front of them. And they stood there looking sad. Literally, the Bible says that they were looking sad. And they're like, have you not heard the things that are happening? And Jesus is like, what things? Tell me. Concerning, look, next verse, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. They knew exactly who he was. They saw what he did. Right aim. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and then they crucified him. But their Messiah complex changed when they saw the suffering he had to endure. Look at the next verse. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
Do you hear that? We had hoped. Disappointment. Walking with the one who had raised the dead and healed the lame and brought sight to the blind now was dead. We had hoped. Have you ever been disappointed? I mean, really, have you ever, have you ever been disappointed? I know that I have. It happens every fall. Why? Because I'm an NC State fan. Every year. This is our year, baby. This is our year. And then what happens? We lose to some podunk FCS football team and our dreams are crushed. I know that that's coming in like two weeks. It's fine. Actually, I don't live, I, I, don't, I don't get disappointed. I live with disappointment as an NC State fan, right? It's just my life. And now I'm raising my children up in it. Sorry, kids. I, I remember one time um, I went to, uh, to see Les Mis in the movie theaters with my wife and some friends, okay? I grew up on Liam Neeson Les Mis, okay? And I went to go see the Hugh Jackman Les Mis. And about 20 minutes into Les Mis, I remember leaning over to my friend and I said, hey, bro, do they sing the whole entire time? And he said, bro, it's a musical. And I had to sit there for the next two and a half hours because it's the longest ever, right? Knowing that I was now sitting through a musical, I thought I was getting Liam Neeson, not Hugh Jackman, right? Disappointment. Maybe, listen, maybe you've been disappointed in life. Your disappointments vary on different levels. Maybe it's a surface-level disappointment, or maybe it's a heart disappointment. Disappointment is the direct result of someone's hope not being met or, for, or fulfilled, being let down. Maybe you've been let down by a job. You thought it was going to be one thing. You started the job, and you found out this is not what I signed up for. What do you do? Right? You either stick through it with disappointment or you turn and you start looking for another one. Maybe you've been disappointed by your spouse and you're on the verge of considering leaving because they're not living up to the expectation that you thought they would live up or you're seeing the reality of sin that's literally in your home. Maybe you went to South Carolina to get barbecue only to realize they put mustard in their sauce. Nasty. The disciples' hope was diminishing minute by minute after the death of Jesus. This is no like hoorah Easter Sunday. This is, this is sadness creeping in. Their hope was diminishing because they didn't see the full picture of what was actually happening in front of them. The reason these men lost hope was because they missed the target that everything that they knew about the Redeemer was actually pointing to. Could it, could it be that we know just enough about Jesus to help us get, to get by? But when disappointment hits, all of a sudden we abandon ship. Because we think, how could a loving God allow pain, disappointment, and suffering? But the gospel gives hope in your pain. The gospel gives hope in your suffering. It makes sense of it all on the other side of the cross post-resurrection. These men did not need another earthly ruler. They, they didn't need a new political regime. <gasps> I said it. They didn't need new policy. They didn't need someone to fix their economy. They didn't need someone to pray to before they took the field to compete. Those are all good things, but they're not the ultimate thing. It's not the actual target. They needed an eternal redeemer, but to have an eternal redeemer, they needed one that would go beyond the limits of life and death. But how? 
How? Well, let's see how Jesus begins to bring clarity to the conversation. Point number two, Jesus gives them a rediscovered hope. A rediscovered hope. Look in verse 25. He starts to give them a Bible study. And then he says to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the things that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. Literally, the the term in Greek that's used here to translate, oh, foolish ones, it means to have a defect in your thinking. It's like talking to a middle school boy. It's like they went to bed as a 12-year-old with one, and then the next day they woke up as a 13-year-old, like, what happened to you? There's a defect in your thinking. Uninformed, ignorant ones. And then Jesus begins to unpack all the scripture to them. Now, to what extent he does that, I'm not entirely sure. But one thing I do know, he begins to connect the dots from the beginning to the end, upon which how what Sally Lloyd-Jones phrases it, how every story has been whispering his name. He walks them through every part of it. He's helping connect the dots again. He's helping them see that all the things that have unfolded, not over just the last few years, but specifically over the last few days, months, have all been intentional. Yes, even his death. He's making the right target clear for these two guys again. He's bringing alignment and clarity to upon that which he had to go through. I could, I could talk, I could sit down over coffee with you and talk to you about all the ways, how from the beginning to the end, you flip the pages, how you see literally a signpost on every page of scripture, the way that it's all either pointing to Jesus or as Jesus has fulfilled it or how he's one day going to fulfill it again. Example, Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world, all of a sudden they realize that they're what? Butt naked. So what do they do? They try to clothe themselves, they, they, upon which they start to cover themselves by their own works. They cover themselves with fig leaves, bushes, branches. God comes up, he's like, hey, where are you? What are you doing here? And they're like, here I am. And they're covered in fig leaves. And before God kicks them out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, guess what he does for them? He provides a sacrifice. He removes their works, their covering, and he covers them with the sacrifice of the animal. That is a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that would one day cover your sin. That's in Genesis chapter 3. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of the Bible. Now, rather than going page by page, I want to show you how every book is about one story. 66 books, one story, one name. John Calvin says it this way. John Calvin was a a French theologian and pastor during the Reformation in the 1500s. He says, if one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to him. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul in another passage say that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So if you guys, I know I'm going to get emails about this because you're going to ask, where did this come from? You can actually download my transcript on the Biltmore Church website this week, okay? You can get these resources. I didn't didn't come up with this, but I can point you to where this comes from. I want to show you how every book of the Bible, literally all 66 books, have been whispering, shouting the name of Jesus from the beginning. Y'all ready? 
Buckle up. Here we go. Okay, you ready? Here we go. In Genesis, he was the word creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, he was the Passover lamb whose blood covered on the doorpost of your heart to save you from the enemy. In Leviticus, he was the scapegoat who bore your sins. In Numbers, he was the ever-present guide. He was also lifted up like the bronze serpent upon which you would gaze your eyes and you would find life. In Deuteronomy, he was the prophet coming who was greater than Moses. In Joshua, he was the conquering warrior leading you to the promised land. In Judges, he was the broken savior rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, he was your kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, he was the one that nobody saw coming, the unlikely king who would one day go to battle on behalf of all of his people and take down the enemy by himself. In First and Second Kings, he was the righteous ruler. In First and Second Chronicles, he was the reigning king. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he was our Mordecai, our advocate restoring you. In Job, he was your living redeemer. In the Psalms, he is your shepherd in the valley. In Proverbs, he is wisdom. He is the fountain upon which all wisdom flows. In Ecclesiastes, he is the one that your ultimate pursuit is found in. Like a chasing after the wind, he would say all those things are, but ultimate satisfaction is found in me alone. In Isaiah, he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the one who would be, oh, don't miss this, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes you would be what? healed. In Lamentations, he was the, uh, the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is a river bringing healing to the nation. In Daniel, he is the other man in the fiery furnace that saved their life from the pit. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband pursuing the unfaithful wife. In Joel, he is the restorer. In Amos, he is the one who bore our burdens. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is the one cast into the wrath of the sea, swallowed up by death, and resurrected on the shore. How many days later? Three days later. Hello. In Micah, he is the everlasting ruler, born to us in a town called Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist. In Zephaniah, he is the one who quiets you. He is your savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the pierced son whom every eye on earth will one day behold. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. That's just the Old Testament. Then you get into the New Testament. Matthew, he's the Messiah. Mark, the wonder-working servant. Luke, he's the son of man. John, he's the word become flesh, dwelling among us. In Acts, he's the savior of the world. In Romans, he's the righteousness of God. In 1 and 2 Corinthians, he is the rock and victorious one. In Galatians, he is your freedom from the curse of the law. If this is not stirring your heart, something is wrong with you, okay? In Ephesians, he is the head of the body. In Philippians, he is our ultimate 
joy, supplying all of our needs according to his glorious riches. In Colossians, he is the firstborn over all creation. In First and Second Thessalonians, he is our hope both now and forevermore. In First and Second Timothy, he is our mediator between God and man. In Titus, he is our faithful pastor. In Philemon, he is our redeemer and our benefactor. In Hebrews, our great high priest. In James, the power in your works. He is the power behind your works. In 1st and 2nd Peter, he is your living cornerstone. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is our advocate and our motivation. In Jude, he is the one who keeps you from falling. And in Revelation, he's the king that will come again triumphantly. That is the trajectory and storyline in all of Scripture. Every story whispers his name. Do you see it? Here's the deal. Even after all of that, the disciples still didn't get it. Like, why? Because even just a Bible study led by Jesus isn't what you need. We need more than just the principles on paper. We need the very presence of the suffering servant, the one who would be broken on their behalf. Remember how he sets this Bible study up for them. Remember this, okay? Don't miss this. This is what he says. Verse 26, after all of those things, okay, he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? That the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory. He's reminding them of suffering. And then he ends with the picture that he gives the disciples at the table before he would go to the cross. Remember the Lord's Supper? He breaks bread with them and they still don't get it. They still don't see what's coming ahead. Then they see they are eyewitnesses to the very brokenness and wounding of their hoped Messiah. And then in verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he blessed it. They still don't see. But then when he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. You see, the wrong target that these disciples were shooting at was a Messiah without suffering. But the way of the Redeemer was not leave glory, restore glory. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He took off his robe of glory and he came in the flesh. He became and he dwelt as one of us. But then check this out. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is where we get excited, right? That the name of Jesus, every every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What these guys thought was that God would bring a Messiah that would leave glory and restore glory. But what Jesus said that had to take place was that he would leave glory, become one of us, and suffer in our place. And then he would restore glory, the suffering servant, so that we might know that there is glory on the other side of the grave. 
Last week, our, our friend Dan Leanne gave us a beautiful picture of what happened on the hill. Do y'all remember that if you were here? Right? He, he gave us this beautiful picture of it. He said, on that hill, a love was on display, a price was being paid, and a way was being made. And that sermon stirred my heart. It stirred my heart. I know that it stirred yours as well. Why? Because suffering only makes sense this side of the resurrection. The cross makes sense because of the empty grave for the believer. The empty grave is the hope that we have as we walk through our suffering. We don't need a new regime and office. We don't need a tweak to our lifestyle. We need the person that gives us answers to our pain and our suffering. We need one that makes sense of it all. We need the presence and the person of Jesus. And when we see Jesus, the one who suffered in our place, now all of a sudden you can walk in this life with hope. You now know that you have a a shepherd who walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because he went into it. We know that we have a sustainer that holds us up when our legs are weak from walking the road ahead of us. Why? Because he walked that road with a cross on his back and a curse upon him. Deuteronomy tells us that cursed is the man who hangs upon the tree. Why is Jesus cursed in that moment? Because he took your curse and my curse in our place. Beauty will rise from your ashes, church. Beauty will rise from your ashes. Every story whispers his name, and his name, written on the tablet of your heart by his blood, changes everything for you as a follower of Christ. Last thing. After they went through the disappointment, the diminishing hope, Jesus then helps them rediscover it by seeing that the servant must suffer. And that he truly is risen. Check this out. The resurrection has now redefined their hope. It's given them a new lens, right? You ever been to a 3D movie? Okay, you ever taken the glasses off? You're like, no, doesn't make sense. You put your glasses back on. Now it's like all clear. The glasses are on. The resurrection gives you a new lens for life. And they rose, verse 33 says, and they rose that same hour. Did you see that? They had just walked seven miles from Jerusalem. Jesus encounters them on the road. He gives them a Bible study. Shows them the broken servant had to suffer in their place. Makes sense of all the pain for them. And then all of a sudden, the new lens is put on. And at that very moment, in that very hour, they stood up. Because they now had a message to proclaim that what they were hearing back home was true, that the grave was empty, not because somebody stole his body. No, because Jesus kicked the stone away and he was raised to dead. It is true that the tomb is empty and the empty tomb now redefines every facet of your life. Every aspect of your life, every piece of your life, every relationship in your life, the resurrection changes it. Every season in your life, whether you're going through a hardship or whether you're on the mountaintop, you're living in the valley, that's where the green grows. How do you know the green grows there? Because Jesus has given us hope beyond the valley. How do you know that there's a mountaintop? Because you have one that is now seated at the right hand of the throat of God. You now look back. It all makes sense now because you look back and you see the empty grave and you see the suffering servant who now walks with you in and through your suffering. Praise God for the goodness of God that he does not leave you where you are. Three really quick things for you, okay? They're not going to be on your screen. What does this mean for you? Number one, 
Look, when you study the Bible, don't look for sound advice. Look for Jesus. When you study the Bible, it's either a foreshadowing of Jesus or it's Jesus showing up or it's a fulfillment of all the prophecies or it's the one who is to come. When you look for Christ, when you look for Jesus on every page of Scripture, guess what? You will find him. You'll find him. It changes the way that you interact with your friends that are also looking for hope and healing. Number two, when you suffer, remember, that's the way of the believer. It's not the abandonment of God. That's the way of every follower of Christ. It's not the abandonment of God. July 13th, I get a phone call, 4 o'clock in the morning. My neighbor, I'm staying at a cabin across town. She says, Jason, I'm sorry to wake you up this early in the morning, but your house is on fire. So I get my 12-year-old up, we get out of bed, we run over there, I see it, five fire trucks fighting a fire in my home that is completely gone. I was supposed to move in it with my family a few days later. I look at that, and you know what I look at that through a lens of? Pain, hurt, diminished hope. But you know what I see rising from those ashes? Beauty. Why? How can I look at a heap of rubble and see beauty? Because Jesus literally was the heap of rubble who then raised from the dead and now gives beauty to every facet of my life. Beauty will rise from your ashes. For every fear, there's an empty grave. The risen one is overcome. And then number three, quit tiptoeing in life as if the grave's not empty. Live life in light of the reality that the tomb is empty. What if we lived every single day as followers of Jesus with the same joy and hope that we walk into the doors on on Easter Sunday? Something just feels different about Easter Sunday, doesn't it? Something should feel different every day for the believer. The resurrection changes everything. Suffering servant, broken for you, so that you know in your suffering you have one who's gone before you and you have hope beyond that suffering as we sojourn in this world as citizens of another world. Father, you're good. Thank you for your grace. God, I pray that we would be a people that look for you. We don't need tweaks. We need you. We need the presence of God in our hearts. We need the presence of God in our lives. Father, we need Jesus. We need you. God, I pray that our lives would be transformed by your glory. I pray that we would be transformed in the midst of suffering. God, I know, we know that the ache and the pain of suffering is real, but the burden of it is no longer crippling because you have crippled death. There's hope beyond the grave, and we thank you for the hope that comes in the gospel. We thank you, Father, that every page of the Bible, every story whispers your name. May we be a church that declares the hope, that declares the goodness of God in every season of life. May we be a people whose lives are transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. It's in your name we pray and believe these things. Amen.